Hello and welcome to Folklore of the Universe, the podcast that is now bigger, better, and breader, breadier, breadadier. I'm your host, Kyle. This is episode 20. Now that I'm paying for podcast hosting, I've got infinite time, pretty much, to talk about whatever. I mean, it's still going to be folklore, mostly I'm talking about, but still, if I can stretch it out, I can relax more into it, add a little flair, pizzazz, it's going to be great. Also, episode 20, that's one hell of a landmark, right? Like, it's, it's come a long ways. I think it's better now. I mean, hopefully, this episode should be the best one so far, because I can, I'm doing more innovation stuff. Um, but still, it's, it's been a journey. It's been an odyssey, you could say. That is one thing that's not going to change, the puns. They're still going to be there. It's, it's just a fact of life. Kind of like the sun. Except the sun is warm and bright and happy and the source of most life on Earth, while puns are just... puns. As far as announcements go, the only other really big one is that the podcast is now up on Spotify and Google Play, which is pretty cool. It's more accessible for everyone out there, all of you. I really should have done that a long-ass time ago, but I didn't. Still, you know what they say, um, better late than never, right? So, it's up now, so we should be, should be good. Anyways, that's all the announcements I have for this episode, so I think it's time to dive into our, our content, our actual info, details, stuff. So this episode, I've got a Grimm's fairy tale and an Irish fairy tale, but of course, first, as always, as is tradition, is the Monster of the Week. This episode, our Monster of the Week is from Estonian folklore, and it's called the Krat. That's K-R-A-T-T. The Krat isn't really so much a creature as it is a construct. It's something you make out of bits of hay and other random materials you find around the house. You put all those together, then you add three drops of blood to it, and then the devil, good old Lucy, will animate it for you, and it'll be this sort of, like, golem creature, which you assign to do various tasks for you. So it's basically like a little robot magic servant you can create, but the catch is it has to constantly be doing jobs or otherwise it gets dangerous and turns on its owner, as all good robots should. The way to sort of get around this is to give it an impossible task, like building a ladder out of bread is one classic one, and this makes it to try and do this task and it takes super long that it gets frustrated and catches itself on fire, then it burns up because it's made of hay and it's gone, your problems are solved. So they just should have done that in, like, The Matrix or The Terminator. It would have made things a lot easier. Also, because they were destroyed by having themselves catch on fire, it used to be thought that really bright meteors that went through the sky were these crats that were burning up because they had some impossible task to do. So it is quite cool having this tie-in with folklore and astronomy like that. And because these things are basically robots or computers, in Estonia, there's a strong tie-in to artificial intelligence, so crats have strong connotations with that. One example of this is that algorithmic liability law is also called the Krat Law, after these guys. So overall, very interesting creatures, especially with how similar they are to golems, because golems are sort of the same thing, they're a construct you make to carry out tasks for you. So it's cool that people came up with robots in folklore before robots were even a real thing. Sort of neat little future prediction, predicty thing there. 
Anyway, enough about crats and robots. We're gonna move on to our stories now. First up, we've got our Grimm's fairy tale. And this story is called The Water of Life. There once was a king who had an illness, and no one believed they had come out of it with his life. He had three sons who were much distressed about it, and went down into the palace garden and wept. There they met an old man who inquired as to the cause of their grief. They told him that their father was so ill that he would most certainly die, for nothing seemed to cure him. Then the old man said, I know of one more remedy, and that is the water of life. If he drinks of it, he will become well again, but it is hard to find. The eldest said, I will manage to find it, and went to the sick king and begged to be allowed to go forth in search of the water of life, for that alone could save him. No, said the king, the danger of it is too great, I would rather die. But he begged so long that the king consented. The prince thought in his heart, If I bring the water, then I shall be best beloved of my father, and shall inherit the kingdom. So he set out, and when he had ridden forth the little distance, a dwarf stood there in the road and called to him, and said, Where away so fast? Silly shrimp, said the prince, very haughtily. It is nothing to do with you, and rode on. But the little dwarf had grown angry, and had wished an evil wish. Soon after this, the prince entered a ravine. The further he rode, the closer the mountains drew together, and at last the road became so narrow, he could not advance a step further. It was impossible either to turn his horse or to dismount from the saddle, and he was shut in there as if in prison. The sick king waited long for him, but he did not come. Then the second son said, Father, let me go forth to seek the water, and thought to himself, if my brother is dead, then the kingdom will fall to me. At first the king would not allow him to go either, but at last he yielded, so the prince set off on the same road that his brother had taken, and he too met the dwarf, who stopped him to ask where he was going in such haste. Little shrimp, said the prince, that is nothing to you, and rode on without giving him another look. But the dwarf bewitched him, and he, like the other, rode into a ravine, and could neither go forwards nor backwards. So fair, haughty people. As the second son also remained away, the youngest begged to be allowed to go forth to fetch the water, and at last the king was obliged to let him go. When he met the dwarf, and the latter asked him where he was going in such haste, he stopped, gave him an explanation, and said, I am seeking the water of life, for my father is sick unto death. Do you know, then, where that is to be found? No, said the prince. As you have borne yourself kindly, not haughtily like your false brothers, I will give you the information and tell you how you may obtain the water of life. It springs from a fountain in the courtyard of an enchanted castle, but you will not be able to make your way to it if I do not give you an ironed wand and two small loaves of bread. Strike thrice with the wand on the iron door of the castle, and it will spring open, inside like two lions with gaping jaws. But if you throw a loaf to each of them, they will be quieted. Then, hasten to fetch some of the water of life before the clock strikes twelve. Else, the door will shut again, and you will be imprisoned. The prince thanked him, took the wand and the bread, and set out on his way. When he arrived, everything was as the dwarf had said. The door sprang open at the third stroke of the wand, and when he had appeased the lions with the bread, he entered the castle and came to a large and splendid hall wherein sat some enchanted princes, whose rings he drew off their fingers. 
A sword and a loaf of bread were lying there, which he carried away. After this, he entered a chamber in which was a beautiful maiden, who rejoiced when she saw him, kissed him, and told him that he had delivered her, and should have the whole of her kingdom, and that if he would return in a year, their wedding should be celebrated. Likewise, she told him where the spring of the water of life was, and that he was to hasten and draw some of it before the clock struck twelve. Then he went onwards, and at last entered a room where there was a beautiful newly made bed, and as he was very weary, he felt inclined to rest a little, so he lay down and fell asleep. When he awoke, it was striking a quarter to twelve. He sprang up in a fright, ran to the spring, drew some water in a cup which stood near, and hastened away. But just as he was passing through the iron door, the clock struck twelve, and the door fell too, with such violence that it carried away a piece of his heel. He, however, rejoiced at having obtained the water of life, went homewards, and again passed the dwarf. When the latter saw the sword and the loaf, he said, With these you have won a great wealth. With the sword you can slay whole armies, and the bread will never come to an end. But the prince would not go home to his father without his brothers, and said, Dear dwarf, can you not tell me where my two brothers are? They went out before I did in search of the water of life, and have not returned. They are imprisoned between two mountains, said the dwarf. I have condemned them to stay there, because they were so haughty. Then the prince begged until the dwarf released them, but he warned him, however, and said, Beware of them, for they have bad hearts. When his brothers came, he rejoiced, and told them how things had gone with him, that he had found the water of life, and had brought a cupful away with them, and had rescued a beautiful princess, who was willing to wait a year for him, and then their wedding was to be celebrated, and who had obtained a great kingdom. After that, they rode on together, and chanced upon a land where war and famine reigned, and the king already thought he must perish, for the scarcity was so great. Then the prince went to him, and gave him the loaf, with which he fed and satisfied the whole of his kingdom. And then the prince gave him the sword too, with which he slew the hosts of his enemies, and could now live and rest in peace. The prince then took back his loaf and his sword, and the three brothers rode on. But after this, they entered two more countries where war and famine reigned, and each time the prince gave his loaf and his sword to the kings, and now delivered three kingdoms, and after that, they went on board a ship and sailed over the sea. During the passage, the two eldest conversed apart and said, The youngest has found the water of life, and not we, for that our father will give him the kingdom, the kingdom which belongs to us, and will rob us of all our fortune. They then began to seek revenge, and plotted with each other to destroy him. They waited until they found him fast asleep, then they poured the water of life out of the cup, and took it for themselves. Into the cup they poured salt sea water. Now therefore, when they arrived home, the youngest took his cup to the sick king in order that he might drink out of it and be cured. But scarcely had he drunk a very little of the salt sea water, than he became still worse than before. And as he was lamenting over this, two eldest brothers came, and accused the youngest of having intended to poison him and said that they had brought him the true water of life, and handed it to him. He had scarcely tasted it, when he felt the sickness departing, and became strong and healthy as in the days of his youth. After that, they both went to the youngest, mocked him, and said, You certainly found the water of life, but you have had the pain, and we the gain. You should have been sharper, you should have kept your eyes open. We took it from you while you were asleep at sea, 
and when a year is over, one of us will go and fetch the beautiful princess. But beware that you do not disclose any of this to our father. Indeed, he does not trust you, and if you say a single word, you shall lose your life into the bargain. But if you keep silent, you shall have it as a gift. The old king was angry with his youngest son, and thought he had plotted against his life. So he summoned the court together, and had sentence pronounced upon his son, that he should be secretly shot. And once, when the prince was riding forth to the chase, suspecting no evil, the king's hunter had to go with them. And when they were quite alone in the forest, the hunter looked so sorrowful that the prince said to him, Dear hunter, what ails you? The hunter said, I cannot tell you, and yet I ought. Then the prince said, Say openly what it is, I will pardon you. Alas, said the hunter, I am to shoot you dead, the king has ordered me to do it. Then the prince was shocked and said, Dear hunter, let me live. There, I give you my royal garments, give me your common ones in their stead. The hunter said, I will willingly do that, indeed, I should not have been able to shoot you. Then they exchanged clothes, and the hunter returned home. The prince, however, went further into the forest. After a time, three wagons of gold and precious stones came to the king for his youngest son, which were sent by the three kings who had slain their enemies with the prince's sword and maintained their people with his bread, and who wished to show their gratitude for it. The old king then thought, Can my son have been innocent? And said to his people, Would that he were still alive! How it grieves me they have suffered him to be killed! He still lives, said the hunter. I could not find it in my heart to carry out your command, and told the king how it had happened. Then a stone fell from the king's heart, and yet it proclaims in every country that a son might return and be taken into favor again. The princess, however, had a road made up to her palace, which was quite bright and golden, and told her people that whoever came riding straight along it to her would be the right wooer and was to be admitted, and whoever rode by the side of it was not the right one and was not to be admitted. As the time was now close at hand, the eldest thought he would hasten to go to the king's daughter, gave himself out as her deliverer, and thus win her for her bride and the kingdom to boot. Therefore, he rode forth, and when he arrived in front of the palace and saw the splendid golden road, he thought it would be a sin and a shame if he were to ride over that, and turned aside and rode on the right side of it. But when he came to the door, servants told him that he was not the right man, and was to go away again. Soon after this, the second prince set out, and when he came to the golden road, and his horse had put one foot on it, he thought that it would be a sin and a shame to tread a piece of it off, and turned aside, and rode on the left side of it. And when he reached the door, the attendants told him that he was not the right one, and he was to go away again. When at last the year had entirely expired, the third son likewise wished to ride out of the forest to his beloved, and with her forget his sorrows. So he set out and thought of her so incessantly, and wished to be with her so much, that he never noticed the golden road at all. So his horse rode onwards up the middle of it, and when he came to the door, it was opened, and the princess received him with joy, and said that he was her deliverer, and lord of the kingdom, and their wedding was celebrated with great rejoicing. When it was over, she told him that his father invited him to come to him, and had forgiven him. So he rode there, and told him everything, how his brothers had betrayed him, and how he had nevertheless kept silence. The old king wished to punish them, but they had gone to sea, and never came back as long as they lived. The End
The story is very much a classic Grimm's fairy story in a lot of different ways. You've got the three brothers who go on the quest. The first two mess it up because they're jerks. Uh, usually they, they piss off the magical entity on the roadside, like the dwarf in this case. The youngest brother, he succeeds because he's not a jerk, and he's actually nice to the magic entity on the side of the road. Then, of course, he rescues a princess who's under some enchantment, and they marry each other, and everything's all all good and happy and all of that. So a lot of classic Grimm's fairy tale beats, but this is still a really great story. Because while this uses a lot of classic fairy tale tropes, it is probably the best, one of the best usages of all of them. Like, this is just a really great story altogether, and that's because we've got so many other aspects in this. Like, we've got the magic water trying to heal his father. He, we've got these magic gifts he get, which are pretty standard, but then he uses those to help other people on the way home. And that comes back and helps him later. Then he gets betrayed by his brothers. There's really a lot going on here, and it's quite good. The rule of threes also really comes into play in this one. You might have noticed that. That's the third brother who succeeds. He helps out three kingdoms at the end. It's the third time to go and marry the princess. So rule of three is a big thing in all people's stuff, because people really like it for some reason. Uh, I'm not sure. I do. It's pretty great, number three. And it shows up a lot in everything. The big interesting thing in this story, though, is the water of life, the sort of main deal. Because this seems to be a weird cross between the fountain of youth and the tree of life. And the tree of life is basically the same thing. It's a tree whose fruit is magical healing properties. The fountain of youth is water, a fountain, that makes you young again. And both of these concepts have been around a long time in European culture, but this seems to be a bit of both of them, because the water doesn't make you young, it just heals you, but it is water, it's not, not a tree. So it seems to be an interesting blend of these different ideas, then mixed in with a lot of traditional European fairy tale stuff too, where it's inside this enchanted castle with traps and dangers. Speaking of... I don't know if anyone else expected this, but I totally expected the princess to actually be a trap. Like, she would convince him to stay there, then he'd go past 12, and he'd be trapped inside, or at least she'd try to, but no, she was legit. The bed, that was the trap. That was the dangerous bit. But even then, he was still able to escape from. His brothers were the real danger. They were, they were, they were dicks. Especially with how they were taunting him there. Like, that's not, that's not very cool brotherly behavior. I don't think that's how, how you're supposed to do it. But then, of course, we've got the moral aspect which kicks in, where the youngest brother is redeemed, or at least redeemed in the eyes of his father, by feedback from the good actions he did before, by all those kings who he helped out giving him gifts. So as in a lot of these, there's that moral idea that if you do good stuff for other people, they'll help you out and help, help make things go better, smooth things out. So a little tip to all you dads out there, if your kid starts receiving presents from total strangers, that means they're, um, they're a total G. They're a legit, legit deal. Um, there's no, no strange connotations or any suspicious behavior they're up to. No, it's, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Give them free stuff, too. Just in general, trust people who get a lot of free shit. There we go, top tip. Now, though, let's move on to our Irish folk story. This story is called The Doctor's Fetch. 
In one of her Irish cities, and in a room where the mild moonbeams of a summer night were resting on the carpet and on the table near the window, Mrs. B, wife of a doctor in good practice and general esteem, looking towards this window from her pillow, was startled by the appearance of her husband, standing near the table just mentioned, and seeming to look with attention on a book that was lying open on it. Now the living and breathing man was lying by her side, apparently asleep, and greatly as she was surprised and affected, she had sufficient command of herself to remain without movement, lest she should expose him to the terror which she herself at the moment experienced. After gazing at the apparition for a few seconds, she bent her eyes on her husband to ascertain if his looks were turned in the direction of the window, but his eyes were closed. She turned round again, though dreading the sight of what she now felt certain to be her husband's fetch, but it was no longer there. She lay sleepless throughout the remainder of the night, but still bravely refrained from disturbing her partner. Next morning, Mr. B, seeing signs of disquiet in his wife's countenance while at breakfast, made some affectionate inquiries, but she concealed her trouble, and at his ordinary hour, he sallied forth to make his calls. Meeting Dr. C in the street, and falling into conversation with him, he asked his opinion on the subject of fetches. I think, was the answer, and so I am sure do you, that they are mere illusions, produced by a disturbed stomach acting upon the excitable brain of a highly imaginative or superstitious person. Then, said Dr. B, I am highly imaginative or superstitious, for I distinctly saw my own outward man last night, standing at the table in the bedroom, and clearly distinguishable in the moonlight. I am afraid my wife saw it too, but I have been afraid to speak to her on the subject. You have acted like a sensible man, but now be off to your patience, as I must run to mine." About the same hour on the ensuing night, the poor lady was again roused, but by a more painful circumstance. She felt her husband moving convulsively, and immediately after he cried to her in low and interrupted accents, "'Ellen, dear, I am suffocating. Send for Dr. C.' She sprang up, huddled on some clothes, and without waiting for the slow movements of the servant, she ran to his house. He came with all speed, but his efforts for his friend were useless. He had burst a large blood vessel in the lungs, and was soon beyond human aid. In the passionate lamentations, which the bereaved wife could not restrain in the presence of the physician, she frequently cried out, Oh, the fetch! The fetch! At a later period, she told him of the appearance the night before her husband's death, and as he thoroughly believed her statement, it involved the theory he henceforth entertained on the subject of fetches in considerable confusion. The End A semi-common part of Irish folklore that shows up in a few stories a good amount is that people don't believe in folklore things and are then proven wrong. Which is pretty explicit in this story, how we see the doctor literally at the end wonders if his previous thoughts about fetches were wrong, and doesn't know what to believe now. Speaking of the fetches, should probably go over more clearly what those actually are. As the story implies, a fetch is sort of a ghostly doppelganger of a person who is about to die, so it sort of heralds their death, sort of like a banshee would, but this is a slightly different herald mechanism. It's probably best related to the doppelgangers in German folklore and the wraiths in English folklore, who both do the same thing. They're a ghostly apparition of a person who shows up before they die. 
The name fetch is sort of hard to trace. It's generally thought to refer to fetching the person's soul to the afterlife. And again, it's not really clear if that's some sort of entity that shows up, or if it's the person's soul leaving their body temporarily, or something else. It, we don't really know what, what the deal is with the fetches, or their whole shebang is. It is a very interesting contrast in the story, though, because like I said, a lot of elements of these stories is people not believing in su supernatural folklore stuff, uh, Gibbons and then being proven wrong, and usually it's people like doctors or school teachers who don't believe in these things. So it's interesting having a doctor dying of some folklore-related death effect power with the fetch. Imagine, though, if you just had, like, a mirror in your room, and you woke up, and you saw your reflection in the mirror, and you're still super sort of sleepy, so you don't really know what's going on, and you thought, oh shit, it's a fetch, I'm gonna die, and then you freak out and have a heart attack and keel over. That's, that'd be not great. Although that would be some cosmic levels of irony right there. That'd be nuts. So don't keep mirrors in your room, because the bad stuff can happen with those. But I'm afraid it's time to start wrapping up the episode here. So thanks for listening to this new rebranded super episode. Uh, from here on out, the episodes are going to be more like this. So we're going to have the music going during the stories. They can be longer. They're going to have better, better things. Hopefully like this one. Is this one better? Hope Maybe? Possibly? We'll see. But as always, please share this around with all your friends and family. And now it's on Spotify and Google Play, as well as on YouTube and iTunes, so it's even more accessible. So give it reviews and ratings and all that jazz. Uh, contact me if you've got any story suggestions or recommendations or things you hate about it and that I should change. And that is all. So I've been Kyle. This has been episode 20. We'll do episode 21 next week. And not next week, in two weeks. You know the drill. Next time. I've been Kyle, and goodbye.